0: It's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot.
1: Something seems really dumb about this, but here we go. I don't know if animals really have that left to their own devices. If any animals ever get, yeah, could know, you see fat very dogs
0: fat. and cats? But they're often fed. Yeah. I mean, they're often domesticated did you have you know did you have mega chunks in ancient Egypt
1: they venerated cats so maybe they did overfeed their cats and maybe. there was always plenty of asses milk knocking about for those cats because Cleopatra bathed in it so after she'd had her dip they could dash <laughs> into the pool and lap it up Let's get down to Brass tacks. You're listening to the One Sensational Shot Network and this is The Evening Glass with Fletcher Walton. I'm once again joined by comedies Aidan McCaffrey. Hello, Aidan. Hello. Six months ago now, I became utterly preoccupied with streaming and in April, Aidan and I, off the back of some conversations, we recorded for the podcast, but only afterwards did I um, fall deep into a, an online streaming crevasse from which I eventually emerged, I don't know, like six weeks, eight weeks later, with um, uh, a detailed article on my findings, because I was a streaming virgin. I put the article on the website, onesensationalshot.com, um, and armed with that information and that, that detail, I thought then Aidan and I should review my opinions um, and my opening arguments about streaming. Um, it's probably Aiden the thought- best,
0: because my, my main memory of that recording was, we had a back and forth... And then afterwards, we were having like a debrief afterwards on the phone. And you said something which totally convinced me
1: that you were right and I was <laughs> wrong.
0: So actually, the conversation was effectively rendered. It's better that we have the conversation now.
1: I'll try to summarise my, uh, my thoughts and concerns on streaming. Um, I went into this research having almost no understanding of streaming other than I knew that Netflix was important. What I found, the first thing I found out was that it's only important for television, Ultimately, I found that Amazon has a, an extraordinarily large library, but that I thought that Chile was worth a go for um, uh, for pay per view for rental and the BFI player, which is about has about the eleventh uh, biggest library. That that was a decent one. Uh, recently, Aidan, you said that you've been on Moobie, which is yes. a, a tiny library. Although the the Amazon variant, I found is about the 15th or 16th biggest library. But you've said that movie's station, What service does that provide?
0: So the whole the whole gimmick is it's the, it's a new film every day and it's 30 films a month. And it's all independent cinema and foreign cinema uh, and classic stuff. So And kind of from the last few years. You do get new films that sort of appear on there, um, as in stuff from the past two or three months. Uh, you get classics like Eight and a Half a half's currently on there. I watched that, or it was a few weeks ago. Art house cinema and foreign cinema from the past uh, five, ten years. Like, I watched Girlhood uh, last week. That's only came out, what, six years ago? Um, yeah, it's, but that's kind of the vibe. I mean, it, it, what, the, uh, the fact that it's foreign and art house stuff is, is what appeals. Because I feel like, especially on lockdown, I was getting through that stuff that I was missing, that I would have normally seen at, like, you know, Curzon's or yeah, Everyman's or that kind of thing. Although, obviously, Curzon does have its own home cinema function. Although, I think I think this is cheaper. I can't remember off the top of my head. You'll know. You've, you've researched this more. It's uh, And, yeah, it's good. It's very reliable. I'll just say about uh, Chili's is quite good, although I found the buffering's not great. It's the only one out of everything you have mentioned where it uh, pauses occasionally, and uh, you've got to sit around and wait for a bit to, for it to kick up again.
1: I was surprised to find this. Before we recorded today, earlier today and, and the preceding day, I went back to Just Watch, which is the website which we've used for most of the research on this, and it no longer lists Chile in its um, bar of streaming providers. Really? But if you, if you search for... And Chile's still active, but if you search for, for instance, The Hot Rock is one of the pictures that I found that is only on Chile, and Next Stop, Greenwich Village, and Girl 6 by Spike Lean, Five Heartbeats by Townsend. They appear, but it doesn't show the Chili logo. Something unusual is happening with Just Watch and its relationship with Chili. I don't know well, what, just it what is. I mean, This is
0: another aspect of this conversation that was interesting because um, I'm a big fan of Just Watch because it, uh, it certainly appears that it, it'll show you where anything's streaming in the UK. Am I right to say that we've discovered it, it's not fully comprehensive, but it is also probably the most comprehensive search engine, search engine for that function out there?
1: Yeah, I'd agree with yeah,
0: that. Yeah, because I noticed I got a new uh, streaming box through Roku, and that had a couple of random things on there, maybe like Roku TV and Rakuten perhaps, I can't remember which ones, but I noticed they had stuff on there that wasn't showing up on Just Watch. But it certainly seems that if you want to know, if you want to find out where a film's streaming today, now, because you want to watch it this evening, it's the best place to start, without having to do a manual search of every single streaming service.
1: And before we get into the, the bulk of the conversation, I've also checked on all of the films which I found weren't available on streaming services in the UK in May and in June. And thankfully, there are three instances where those films are now available. Michael Mann's Manhunter is currently doing the rounds on Sky, which means it's available on Now TV, Sky Go and Sky Store. Peckin' nice. Straw Dogs is on the BFI player, which is streamable. And then here's one for you Tin Drum by Volker Schlondorf is on oh it's on Mubi Amazon is that the one you've got
0: No I had the actual movie Mubi one
1: This is what I find inscrutable According to Just Watch Mubi Amazon has 796 titles available That makes it the 16th biggest library Mubi on its own has only 222 That That's, makes it that one is... of the smaller libraries I don't understand how they determine the difference
0: I don't know. It must be something to do with the deal with Amazon. It's weird, actually, because one of the films I watch... Sorry, I have, I've, I've been on Movie, I've had an account, I'm a paying account for a few months. But I actually weirdly ended up watching Woman on Fire. Is that what it's called, the Icelandic film? I ended up watching that on the Amazon version because for some reason it wasn't on Movie, But it was on Amazon movie. Very strange.
1: It might be a question of functionality. I have a friend who watches all his streaming through his console and BFI Player Amazon is available through his console, but BFI Player is not. How do you watch Mubi?
0: Through the TV, because it's on my, uh, my Panasonic television. No, sorry, that's not true. My, my Roku box has it as one of the apps on there.
1: It might be that Mubi Amazon is, again, for people who watch through their console but don't have a smart TV, a modern smart TV, and don't have another box through which to access movie this is the feeling that i'm getting that amazon has identified that there is a a set of people yeah. whose primary um, whose primary box is the xbox or is the playstation 4 or maybe it's even 4 also from
0: movie's perspective obviously like a not a massive player in this at least not in you know not a lot of people would have necessarily heard of it but it mm. it'd be a bit like if you were a small film like so, let's say portrait of a woman on fire and it's like do you want to just get shown in picture houses or <laughs> Odeon might show you also so maybe it's like that it's like a bit of a no-brainer for movie because just being having that platform through amazon i'm sure there's some i'd guess there's some disadvantages to it but must be some kind of trade-off there but you know the movie brand becomes more known because it's on amazon
1: and what I found with Mubi, just having a look over the last couple of days since you mentioned it, because when I did my research, its library was so small that I, rend- I considered it insignificant. Um, but this is the is... thing, though. It's
0: about what, it's about the type of thing you get from it, I think. And because, you know, we, we both know that not everything has to be a giant. You can just have a... It's good, it, it's good capitalism to, to identify a niche and say, we're going to service this thing here. Well, you know what I mean? You, you, can, you can be a small hot dog stand <laughs> or something. Yeah. You don't have to be I, McDonald's all the time.
1: In my research subsequently, now I've gone back and started looking at Mubi as a provider as well, I haven't found any films unique to movie, But what I'm ignorant of is the importance of the difference between stream, rent, buy. And there are some films that are available to stream only on Mubi or Mubi Amazon. Portrait of a Lady on Fire is one of them. It's available to rent or to buy on a number of platforms, including Rakuten and YouTube and Amazon. But you can only stream it on Mubi Amazon. So that might be critical, even though it's only got 200-odd titles on the service that you use and barely 800 titles on Mubi Amazon. If many of those are streaming and their streaming on there is unique, maybe that's important.
0: It's definitely an interesting thing that's worth happening because, I mean, one of the things that's convinced... Because, I mean, this sort of originally came out of a, a conversation even prior to the abandoned podcast recording, which was I'm a big fan of, of... of As a film fan, I enjoy streaming. I enjoy the fact that, you know, most films I want to watch, I can find some more online. Now, maybe my tastes aren't quite as niche as, as some of yours. and Maybe that's where the disagreement starts. But you have convinced me that, you know, physical media is it might well be a better way of preserving a lot of old stuff, including classics, because I think I was a bit ignorant of, until you published your list, some of the, you know, big films that are not available on streaming. Now, this includes, as you say, two Cameron films. You, you cannot stream anywhere. And that mm-hmm. is, I think, True Lies and The Abyss. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, like, True Lies one of the top ten highest-grossing films of 1994. The Abyss... Uh, you know, it was sort of regarded as a flop, but it's sort of become a cult interest over time. It was um, top 20 at the best box
1: office as well. I think, it, I think yeah. it was between 15 and 18.
0: Yeah, and, you know, best picture winners, like big ones from the past... Well, you know, big big best picture winners from the past 34 years. That, just nowhere to be found. Um, that's interesting, whereas, you know, you can you know, you can almost certainly walk into CEX and pick up True Lies on DVD. And this is the thing I've done, because I am i rent things. I stream rent. I've now started doing a thing where I have a list of films I want to watch again that I don't own. But before I stream them, because um, I now work directly next to a CEX, I'll go in there and try and find those films. Even if it means paying 50p, and I'm a HD snob, but I will think, you know what, 50p for a DVD, it's not high definition, but... It's such a good deal. You know, yeah. as long as... You know, it depends what it is. As I've said before, I don't... You know, if I want to watch Husbands and Wives* by Woody Allen, you know, I'd gladly pick up a 50p secondhand copy of that on DVD to watch. Yeah, If I want to watch, um, you know, The Bridge Over the River Kwai, okay, I might stream that in HD or try and pick up a secondhand Blu-ray where it might cost up to a fiver. But again, because it's kind of... The experience is so much about all those rich visuals. Mm. It's already paid off. I've definitely... Yeah, man, I, I I text Fletch often from uh, from CEX saying, "Look at this." Uh, the most recent one was they picked up every all three of those First Born films starring uh, Matt Damon for a collective price of two pound fifty on Blu-ray. Like that's mad. That's not even DVD. I got a critically acclaimed, massively commercial, successful thing, uh, three films for collectively two pound fifty, which is insane. And my my theory was though that it was a uh, I think they were very mass-produced, and I'm pretty sure CEX do base their pricings on how available that thing is, because you do end up with odd prices, like, those films are massive, but they're 50p or £1 each, but, you know, a film like Commando on Blu-ray is a fiver, because, and it's kind of, it's interesting, why is Commando £5 on Blu-ray second-hand? You'd think it would be cheaper, but maybe, you know, it was never, like, it was never one of the highest-grossing films ever, even in its year, but obviously it has some cult value, so maybe that's why it's a bit more expensive.
1: Yeah, it's Commando, Running Man, Raw Deal, even though they're lesser Arnie pictures, although uh, fans of Commando would disagree with me there that it's lesser. (laughs) It is a good one. Um, They're part of the Arnie pantheon. There's some that you can disregard, like um, Cactus Jack and Hercules in New York, and at the other end, maybe The Sixth Day, and if we're honest, like most of the stuff he's done over the last 10, 15 years since he... um, uh, Relinquish the reins of governorship of California, but definitely Commando needs to be in that that 15 or 20 film run from Conan up to uh, Batman Eraser? and Robin. Yeah, uh, yeah, it probably is a razor. Yeah, Bat- well, funny, funny one, with Batman and Robin. It's I never think of it as an Arnie film, even though he is, and uh, all of all of the memes that come out of it are so dependent upon his participation and him doing the crap puns. But I
0: think it's worth discounting, just simply for the reason. If you're looking at the heyday and you're looking at it commercially, I think True Light was his last really big film. I think Eraser may have been his last film that took a, maybe enough money to warrant it being a hit versus a budget. And I think since then, it's either been flops or, you know, these sort of C-movie action films that he does, uh, like the one he did with Stallone. What was it called? Prison... Escape Plan. Escape Plan. I'm
1: Watching yeah. that in the cinema, I realised this is the first time I've ever heard him speak German in a film. <laughs> oh, wow, and, that's uh, a really good fact. Yeah, it was transformative. Oh, I'm stealing that for a pub because, quiz. <laughs> because um, there he is in his cell, and I thought, shit, he sounds terrific. And And it's only over the last six or seven years that I've realised that Arnie isn't a bad actor. I'm not even sure the extent to which he's a limited actor. He's incredibly driven and focused to deliver to the audience what is definitely commercial and I think that's one reason why he didn't bother to stretch himself until he'd got into his 60s with pictures like Maggie the one with Abigail Breslin where she is uh, she is about to be zombified you heard about that one
0: is that Maggie or something
1: yeah yeah Um, yeah so he plays the father of a girl who's been bitten and over the course of a number of weeks she will eventually become the undead and I heard that it, again, it's it's not really about stretching himself. I think that even by the mid-90s, he was very much capable of doing these things because there's a bloke in Arnold Schwarzenegger that has succeeded in every arena he's tried. He I can I, almost improve it exponentially.
0: It. I think it's his accent doesn't help because it it almost makes it sound like he's delivering his lines flat. But actually, yeah. he... I think one way people need to look at acting is more about dimensionality. You know, people can have, like, a sort of slightly narrow view of it, like, how many different accents can they do? <laughs> are they able to the lyrics? And actually, it's like, no, but good acting is often looking at the script and and, and picking out the different dimensions of character so that, they, that it doesn't come across as too one note. Uh, and, yeah. I, and, you know, I'm not going to make, I'm not going to pretend that Schwarzenegger like is somehow the master of this. But the fact is, you, there are different sides to him. Um, you know, even just on a basic level, uh, the fact that he made such a successful switch to comedy. Um, yeah, and I think he's sort of, bit of an example there. of that.
1: I'm a bit ignorant of the, um, the, uh, the tough guys from back in the day Marvin, Bronson, Coburn I don't know too much about those fellas, but definitely, when Arnie pivoted to comedy and was so successful with it, that set the standard that all big blokes have been expected to follow. The rock did a couple of comedy pictures. He definitely did the Tooth Fairy one. And the premise is always the same. It's mainly Bing Diesel. This guy's Yeah, he did it with what's the, the Dave
0: Batista's just done one with a little girl, I don't know what it's called.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's always he's always simply what's well, yeah, seen as he's almost done exclusively comedy, yeah. Yeah. Um and it's always the same. It's uh here's a big bloke and he's out <laughs> of his element with children. Or yeah. he's in an, an unusual <laughs> costume. But Arnie started that with Twins, Kindergarten Cop. I mean, yeah. thought didn't even know about Junior. And I suppose that shows the, the lack of cultural footprint it has. Not that it was a, a, an enormously successful film, or even a good film, but that's how far Arnie went down that comedy route, that he could be in a film where a bloke has a baby. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I mean, that's yeah. absurd. But that's what people like. They, you say that to people, Arnie has a baby. Fucking hell, that's stupid. Yeah, I'll watch that, yeah, fuck it. Well, It sounds dumb.
0: you know Red Dwarf did that idea and they wrote a script and they abandoned it?
1: No, he did have children in Red Dwarf, didn't he? No, no, no,
0: no, no. sorry, yeah. At the end of season two, Lister gets pregnant because he has sex in an alternative universe with his female self. And then they dismiss... Then it's a cliffhanger and they dismiss it entirely in the opening of season three with a sort of mock Star Wars crawl. And then they just have a totally different adventure. It's the backwards episode where they go to the backwards earth... And they basically oh, yeah, said, yeah. We wrote the script, and it was called Dad, but we, we decided it was really offensive, so we dropped it. We thought it, like, you know, made light too much of a. <laughs> uh, well, they didn't really specify, but they just felt that women wouldn't have liked it, so they, they dropped it. Yeah. Wo- they, they, that's Grant and Naylor, they were woke before it was cool.
1: I've been saying this for a long time. I remember having a conversation in the kitchen, a, a splenetic uh, conversation with Mary Sweeney about how much, how much Red Dwarf meant to me and how formative mate, it's my
0: formative sitcom it's my formative sitcom well yeah
1: and, and i think f- you had an older brother at least Well, how many older brothers did you have
0: uh, thanks Loads. for bringing that up mate jesus oh, no, uh, and <laughs> no no i i, I you know <laughs> what
1: i meant to say was... when like you were when get, you were joking when yourself, you were 10 just years
0: get old for a second i don't yeah. know if someone said how many brothers do you have i don't know how to answer it i don't know do i say 3 or 4 yeah um, Anyway,
1: yeah. well, that's and, and a discussion. You, no, you raise a really interesting point, because in my head, I was asking the question, when you were 12 years old, how many older brothers did you have? <laughs> but the, I don't know if we have the um, latitude in our language to make the distinction between asking the question, how many did you have 25 years ago, and how many do you have now? Well, well, I, I this wonder if there are languages... Because was it, like,
0: <laughs> they wouldn't know there'd be a difference.
1: Yeah, yeah, I don't, know, I, I don't know if there are languages that, uh, that incorporate that uh, level of s- specificity. Anyway, when you were 12 years old, how many older brothers did you have?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's like, uh, it's like saying, so, do you get to see your parents much? No, because they died, actually, when I was a child. Put <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah,
0: this yeah. lightning bolt on my forehead, don't you know? Um, <laughs> so you, you just don't know. Anyway, um, yeah, I had three older brothers at that point. So
1: you had three older brothers, Um, my old man in his interests, was not unlike having a brother that was 10 or 15 years older, and uh, what I was, the, the point I was making to Mary Sweeney, and the point I'm making to you, and it seems that you're sympathetic to it, is that I was exposed to Blues Brothers, Red Dwarf, The Real McCoy, at such an early age, I was eight or nine years old when I saw these things, that all of that was natural to me, and as we've talked about before, that's why you were right to say, I have been hanging around for 25 years thinking, why aren't you all going to catch up? Like, Red Dwarf had two black leads out of a cast yeah. of four in 1987. It rarely gets mentioned. I mean, n- number one, Red Dwarf has run now for... I know it's been... It's, been, uh, it's lasted for 35 years. It must have had 12 seasons with massive like gaps. It's, it's, it is a great British comedy institution with a rabid fan base um but it 's rarely mentioned in the mainstream conversation it had half of its cast was black at a time when having any black cast members would have been in many ways notable. Its fifth cast member was uh what well, by the third season was a lady Holly. If you were going to have a sixth, it would be Kachansky played by um c p grogan yeah i just and well, I was it. exposed to it. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Uh, There's only, obviously, there's only one real (laughs) Kachansky for me, and it's the chick from Gregory's Girl, and uh, altered images. But, um...
0: You know Red Dwarf fans hated C.P. Grogan in the 80s and 90s?
1: Did... And then they hated Chloe
0: No, 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 they they despised C.P. Grogan. She was really unpopular with the fan base, and I've always been baffled by it. My theory is that because Red Dwarf appealed at the time initially... Obviously, it became like a breakout hit. But the first two or three seasons appealed to a sort of like geeky alternative minority. I wonder if to them it would be like if oh, I don't know some ex bewitched member showed up. Did you know what I mean? And yeah, obviously, mu- music right. music was much more partisan then. So I just wonder if they were like, "What's this shit pop star doing I can't in my?"
1: That's true. She's so good. I mean, yeah. Sorry. I mean, when I say I can't believe it, I'm dead surprised. I don't. Uh, I'm not questioning the fidelity of your argument. Um, she, they're a cracking band. I, they're one of the the more overlooked new wave pop bands of the '80s. Like, you know my opinions on most of that mainstream stuff. But Spandau and Duran Duran are knocked into a cocked hat by altered images and uh, and orange juice as well. But I yeah. The the, the Scottish sound, which included as well Simple Minds, was producing some top stuff. And to think that people were resistant to her... No, I had no idea. I thought that they didn't like the new Kachansky, Chloe Annette, when she came in because she wasn't Claire Grogan. I mean, that's what the fuck I I felt
0: like. (laughs) I'm theorising that it was music partisanship that might have meant people hated her. But I I do know she was... I remember at the time thinking, why does everyone hate Kachansky? I don't get it. It's weird. She is... uh,
1: um for me, again, like she's—I was exposed to that at such an early age that I thought, "Yeah, that's the kind of girl I like." Not that she's one of the blokes, but that she holds her own with the blokes; that she's equally capable, and in the case of uh, Lister and Rimmer, far more capable because she was she outranked them seriously. They did.
0: Um, going back to your point about Red Dwarf and its sort of multi-ethnic uh, ethnic cast, it's um, it's also a good example of how just having having more voices and faces like that is good. It's good capitalism, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like yeah. Because yeah. you'll draw more people in. And Red Dwarf, people forget it, it was massive by the end. It did peak, it was getting like eight, nine million viewers on, I think until Top Gear, it was the most popular thing BBC Two had ever broadcast. Wow. Um, and that had to go somewhere. I mean, it was just because it was a funny show, I guess. But the fact that people could recognize themselves in these, more people could recognize themselves in all these characters. It didn't matter whether you were, you know, uh, black or white or... A Canadian robot. You could be like, "That's me on screen."
1: <laughs> yeah, which I didn't realise until ages and ages later is he's called Crichton because of the admirable Crichton. Uh, for the it's a picture from the fifties about a butler who holds oh, together. Oh, yeah, you yeah, heard that. You probably heard of it. Yeah, um, but it's spelled like Michael Crichton. Because oh, in the this is the thing again. This is a show that's been as we said running for thirty-five years. Crichton came in in the second or th- second season, wasn't it? He's and and a forget. full-time
0: member of the third, but he's played by David Ross in one episode of season two.
1: Yeah, there you go. And people forget that he was a butler on a marooned island. And when yeah. you go back, when you go back to that episode, you realise, oh yeah, this is just the plot of the admirable Crichton. Because what happens is that the, the, the butler holds together, uh, but he becomes the, the patriarch and the, the bonding force of a family that's shipwrecked. And then when they all get back to um, high society, they uh, kind of have to they can't let on that it was their butler that saved them all. I think that's the plot of the film. I watched it a couple of years ago. Oh, anyway, well. Red Dwarf is um, bloody brilliant, and it made those things natural to me. And, yeah, I think that... Uh, I can't remember how we quite got onto that.
0: Do you reckon it's because... Sorry, just to speculate on why it's not including in that conversation. Do you reckon it's because it's not by a, um, a non-white voice, potentially? Could, could that be it? Because, I mean, it is still written by white guys. So was, you mean, wouldn't say, this is an expression of Black England. It's, uh, no, no, I can guess it is. Sorry. It is an expression I, of Black I, England I, I... in a way, because it's the actors are expressing themselves.
1: I think one big reason why the cast of Red Dwarf works is because there's a diversity in comedy as well. Craig Childs was a punk poet. Danny John Jules was an actor slash dancer. Chris um, Bowie was
0: an impressionist. So he was an actor, yeah, but more of an impressionist. He an Image, didn't
1: he? Yeah. And I can't remember what Robert Llewellyn's background is. And yeah, and then as we've said, Claire Grogan is literally a, a singer in a post punk band, a new wave band. Um, how exciting is that? I'd love to see it. That's the kind of th- So, what would you do if, if you're th- doing
0: it now? It would be like Kate Tempest, uh, <laughs> Matt Ford, he does impressions. It would be Kate Tempest as Rimmer, <laughs> someone like Matt Ford. Or oh, can you think of a Black <laughs> Impressionist? Who's a good Black Impressionist?
1: Some, it would be somebody from Family I suppose.
0: Yeah, well they'd be be, um, Lister, then someone off Strictly would be uh, The Cat, insert famous Canadian as Crichton, and then then who's the pop star, who's the sort of punk, someone from Haim would be uh, (laughs) Kachansky.
1: Yeah, actually you you are casting it quite nicely there, because it would definitely require somebody um, from a reality television series that was transitioning into, or dabbling in acting, and that could come from somebody who'd had success on Strictly come dancing, I shouldn't say it by just and, and let myself continue, strictly come dancing. Um,
0: Why, do you, do you not want to call it strictly?
1: I just, it's, it's not for me, it's not my bag <laughs> at all. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Getting back to the point that you made, which I think is in, an interesting point to dwell upon. Um, I think it's not discussed because it's sci-fi. And sci-fi, oh, maybe. to an extent, it's still, it's only in the last ten years that it's been taken out of a ghetto. I couldn't believe this, that I mentioned earlier that I used to watch The Real McCoy with my dad. I hadn't realised it had never been repeated. Whoa! And that makes I even, sense, though, because
0: I sort of don't remember seeing it at any other point in my life apart from that time.
1: I can't believe it hasn't been on UK Play or Gold or Dave at some point in the last 25 years, but that's what's been attested uh, by the article that I read, that it just hasn't been on again, and now it's back on... Now it's, sorry, for the first time, it's on iPlayer. Um, should we should we get back strange. to
0: streaming sorry yeah a, let's get yes, so yeah. I've got a point to make so, you, so basically you've done some great research and you've discovered streaming it, 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 the bad side of streaming is there's lots of films you can't get access to we did, you did mention that in the course of your research was it Manhunter had come gone from being unavailable to being available is that correct?
1: yeah although the, to be honest we've Sky to thank for that because it's only available on Sky services and that does happen more often with these yeah. titles that if Sky gets the rights to the conversation, then it will be available on their three platforms for a year or so.
0: I, I actually broadly on your side now, but but just to sort of present a slight counterpoint to it not everything in either format is always readily available. So Manhunter wasn't available, which is bad, it's a great film. But then suddenly it is available on streaming. But similarly like, you know, I talked about my list of films I have and I go into C E X every week or two and see if They've managed to get any of them in. They're not. So actually, I am. Might you know, I might have to wait a year before I can get husbands and wives on DVD or Blu-ray. Uh, in the same way that streaming-wise, you know, I might have to, I might just have to wait until that month that you know, Last Emperor finally appears before I can watch it. So in that sense, like maybe there is a similarity between the two, in that you're never ever going to get everything fully available at all times. You know, maybe that makes it a bit like the olden days of cinema where. You're like, ah, oh, God, I haven't seen I haven't seen Ben Hur in a while. God, I hope they re-release that soon. And then, like two years later, oh, they're doing a re-release of Ben Ben Hur. Great, look, I can watch Ben Hur rather than yeah. now, where I could just almost certainly stream that tonight if I wanted to from somewhere.
1: Yeah, I think it's poorly understood that even as late as the early eighties, if you wanted to watch a film, if you wanted to become familiar with a film, you went to the cinema and you went to the cinema eight or nine times to see it. Now, now, it films throughout that era, from you know, from the 50s onwards up to the advent of uh, Laserdisc and VHS, films were in repertory. So it was entirely likely that um, if you wanted to see MASH in 1978 and you happened to live in a big city, then it would show during the course of any three to six month period. But to address your point, I think a key problem is um, individuals put blinders on themselves and limit Uh, limit their options. So, uh, yes, it it might be the case that that film is not available in CEX, but um, there are a dozen other ways to find it, whether it's the the kind of Facebook forums that I use for Laserdiscs and VHS, or buying online used DVDs and used Blu-rays, and charity shops as well. I mean, one of the points I've wondered about is whether people really don't have the time any longer, and 2020 is a bad example for this, but whether people really don't have the time any longer to spend half an hour looking through three shops on a Saturday afternoon. I think well,
0: they do. I think they do. But I, I, Yeah, I think they do, but it's just a question of... Um, the question is, how much do you want to watch something, right? Like, uh, or how much do you want to save <laughs> two pounds? I, I don't know. Because ultimately, what we do, and specifically what you do in terms of Laserdisc and all that thing, that's a culture or subculture that you're engaged in. We're very much like... I'll listen to my film podcasts, I'll read film reviews, and I'll be like, right, that's a film I want to see. And hopefully I'll get a chance to see it in the next couple of weeks. Hopefully it will appear on a streaming site. Hopefully cinemas will reopen and I can go and watch it. But, you know, a lot of people, I think on an evening, do just go, what shall we watch? And they scroll through Netflix or Amazon Prime or Now TV, and I guess most nights will find something good to watch, or maybe they don't, or they just hit gold or, you know, they strike gold enough times that they'll just keep on doing that. So, it never really occurs to them. Oh, like, I don't know. Like, let's say they do find Ben Hur on Amazon, you know. And they think, I really want to watch that. But I won't watch it tonight. I'll just, I'll go to, I'll drive to CEX and see if they've got it cheap. This is kind of what I was getting at when, what originally kicked this off, which was I said, as a film fan, the convenience of how many films are available for you to stream at any one point without even in the house is amazing. And then and, you know, except it's not the be-all and Endor, but broadly yeah. speaking, it's fine. Like, and you know, I cite the ex- initial example I cited to you was Punchline, and Punchline's sort of a good one actually, because it's wasn't a hit film by any s- stretch of the imagination. It's not like massively well regarded, but it does have one of the biggest film stars ever in Tom Tom Hanks, um, as well as Sally Field. And being in standard, I was like, I want to watch Punchline tonight. I want to see what that film was like, and I did. I just went on Amazon, I found it. It was like two ninety nine. <laughs> And I rented it and I watched it and it was straightforward. <laughs> I didn't have to comb through CEX for two years to, to wait for a copy to show up or go to yeah. charity shops or all that jazz. So, yeah, you know, I think that's one of the, the appeals of it.
1: And there is a balance to be struck. I'll accept that no one should have to spend years of anticipation built up to see the film Punchline. or a thousand other films that we can mention what my intention is though is to present alternatives for those people because this is a it's a film podcast and it's for people who not just people who might watch a couple of films a month but people who are deliberately sitting down to watch a film a week or possibly even a, a film most nights um and there are alternatives to firstly there's alternatives to the mainstream streamers and i've you got me onto Chile, and I think Chile's worthwhile. I also, I'm a, a proponent of the BFI player, even if it has to be accessed through Amazon, and we've talked about why that might be because of um, access through consoles. One of my points is, is what you mentioned and the way in which you saw that I did have a penetrating argument, which is the, uh, the level to which films are available, and you precisely said, um, for reevaluation.
0: evaluation so what did I say?
1: You, uh, I brought up the example of Billy Friedkin's works. Oh, yeah, no, this,
0: this was... Sorry, I couldn't yeah. remember what had convinced me. That's what convinced me, the idea that directors are really praised. So, you know, if films drop off the the radar, like, you know, films that were trashed, and, like, Sorcerer was the best example, right? That's a film that bombed initially, everyone hated it, and over time it's come to be regarded as, as a minor masterpiece or maybe even a masterpiece.
1: yeah. And it's important for there to be the opportunity for that re-evaluation to take place because if it's only available to a thousand people on Laserdisc and VHS forums, because it's not available on streaming, so sorcerer is, but to live and die in LA isn't. And that means there's a there is a limit um to how many to the groundswell that could generate around a film like that. Now the thing is, I'll accept that. That's unlikely to happen for any film from the 21st century because most stuff from the last 15 to 20 years is available on streaming. There are still pictures the I'm going to argue the
0: opposite of that. One problem broadly with internet culture is there's always a chance that you might be heading into digital dark ages. And actually, once you lose yeah. the megabytes, that could be a problem. And that's something that physical media will always have over it. And that's why you know, they... The library, is it the Library of Congress in America that actually preserves films and says no, we this we've deemed this culturally or aesthetically worthy enough that we we need to save it for for posterity? So yeah. that, that does worry me. Like you know, I'm yeah. What if I make what if I make a film and I put it online and it only gets released online? I'll be delighted if people get to see it. But you know, what if it disappears off the face of the earth? Um, but then I don't know. Maybe that's. A, Maybe that's paranoid talking. Maybe I'm imagining an apocalypse. <laughs> that won't happen. I, I don't know.
1: But there there are also uh, moral implications as well. So I, am, I have several acquaintances that have never bought Sky Sports and so have never had the opportunity to watch Premier League matches. Those friends of mine who don't have it, have, some of them have done so because they don't want to line Rupert Murdoch's pockets. There are moral implications of choosing whether or not to support Netflix. It might be that some people just feel that it's growing too monopolistic or that it's too powerful in some ways. In which case, you have you are then limited, uh, or rather you, you may be um, denying yourself your only route through which to watch films produced by Netflix. Now, luckily, um, so Roma is Netflix, right? Yeah. Roma's Netflix and so is Marriage Story. The Criterion Collection in the Defy US... Bloods. Is that one as well? And Irishman was too, right?
0: Yeah, well, I was going to ask you this, because you don't have Netflix, do you? That's correct. And I was going to ask, pretty much every film you just mentioned is by a director you admire, in some cases Mm. above all other directors. Um, Are you not worried that you're sort of missing out on the conversation, or even just the joy of watching some of these films? Like, you're way bigger Spike Lee man than me, you know? I only watched Do the Right Thing for the first time last year, to my shame. I've seen The Five Bloods, and you, you haven't. And I really want to know what you think about it, because I've got loads of opinions on it. Uh, it's sort of been uh, poorly... Well, it's got mixed reviews. I'm more on the positive side. Uh, and I'm fascinated to know what you think. But 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 I won't, because, I don't know, are you going to watch it? Are you going to get Netflix and watch The Five Bloods? The Five Bloods?
1: Ordinarily, I'd be able to see it at the cinema, because I've no doubt in my mind that Regent the Street PCC or been, somewhere, yeah. Would have been showing it, yeah. Um,
0: but maybe that's quite obviously. good, though, because, like, let's just say things are normal. I mean, I saw The Irishman at the Prince Charles Cinema first thing, uh, like, the first day you could see it, and it was great. But let's just say, hypothetically, it didn't let's say I'm in your shoes. Maybe that's a treat to look forward to. Like, cinemas are reopen really and then there'll be some retrospective screening somewhere of De Five Bloods, and then. Because then maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe that's the other thing. Maybe you don't have to see everything straight away. Maybe there is a joy you know, like old vinyl collectors used to have have been like, oh my god, I found this one rare import that I've never been able to get it's like, oh god, my god, they're the showing, the showing marriage story you know, in Soho, yeah. we've got to go and see it it's, maybe that's part it, of the joy
1: maybe we don't entirely... need everything
0: at our fingertips at all times
1: yeah, well I, I absolutely agree with that that's the kind of opinion that I uh, expound myself delayed gratification things mean more when you wait longer Sometimes um, the wait won't have been worth it, but there's much to be said for delay gratification. I'm, If I cared... I can't say I care sufficiently about the next generation to really say that I'm worried about what this is doing to them, but I don't think it's beneficial to have everything at their fingertips all of the time.
0: The comedian John Robbins on his Radio 5 Live show revealed something interesting, which is he said, so he's a massive Lou Reed fan. He said there's an album by Lou Reed he deliberately never listened to, and he says he'll listen to it in the future, but it's just something for them to look forward to. It's just, it's just hanging there, and I thought, that's really cool. I like, guess the opposite, and I'm like, yeah. I have to devour the entire discography, and it sort of taps into what was, what you're saying, delayed gratification, you don't have to, you don't have to always, you know, have everything there. It's like when yeah, I discovered, like, you, know, you know that Passenger's album that U2 did? Yeah. I was so chuffed when I found out about that. I was like, oh my god, there's a U2 album I've not heard. <laughs> it's really good as well. I mean, it's mental, but it's, it's, it's really yeah, good.
1: exactly, yeah. That's the I'm trying to remember. So that's got on um don't tell me, uh is Goldeneye on that?
0: No. I think Miss Sarajevo was on there. Like yes, the initial yeah, version it of is, it. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a really good example of a a pop culture artifact which was even curious in its own time and would be easily overlooked now. And yes, what I'm talking as Aidan says, what I'm talking about is delayed gratification. Aidan and I grew up at a time when when you were 10, 12, 14 years old, you might have to wait years for a film to come onto television. There was no other way of... There was not necessarily another way of accessing it. Once you got to a certain age, you could probably get it at the video shop. If you lived in a big city, you might have to send away for it. Those things meant more.
0: Yeah, it's like... like, uh, I've probably said this before in your podcast, because I only have three bits of trivia and three opinions, but Star Trek The Next Generation broadcast on terrestrial television in the UK three years after the american broadcast and now yeah. uh, game of thrones is shown at 4 a.m in the night just for people who absolutely can't wait longer than an american <laughs> to see it
1: yeah uh, that's yeah. how
0: much things have changed
1: and i've done that a couple of times i've watched the you know it got to quarter past midnight and I realized i'm still awake i may as well just wait another 45 minutes to see the premiere of the new episode because i they, yeah it went out at 1 a.m or 2 a.m on sky atlantic um I know exactly what you're talking about. I was was and am an X-Files fan. There was a year's wait between the broadcast of this first season in the US and its broadcast on BBC Two. It it shouldn't be staggering. We're talking about literally a generation ago. But to explain to to kids now just what we've said and say, there was a hit show, its first season did okay, and then by the second and third seasons, the X-Files was very briefly, for about 24 months, a cultural phenomenon. um, And it took... 10 to 14 months between US broadcast and UK broadcast. And even when Sky came in, it was still months. I remember at the end of the 90s when the lag for ER and for Friends and The Simpsons got down to as few as two to four weeks. Now we're talking about minutes, or as <laughs> you say, basically a simulcast. Yeah. Um I remember uh, during the 90s, getting sfx magazine and it had in it um an insert printed on more like newspaper print rather than the glossy pages and it it was a a slightly smaller sized insert which was sealed and you had to slide your finger up and along the perforated line and it had in it all the spoilers from the from the us and talking about season four x-files small potatoes (laughs) and it, it was the same with um so what star trek would it have been by then i think ds9 but maybe voyager and what other shows were out at that time? Possibly the Outer Limits, Buffy. Um, yeah, it would have been the first first season or two of Buffy. And it used to be the case that these things would premiere, and we would get them so much later that you would build up an anticipation. You'd read the uh, the print magazine. I, I suppose that's you know adult nerds were uh, online, but you'd read you'd read the print magazine and think, "Wow, shit, I'm looking forward to watching that in three or four months' time." And that brings me to the point that. Sometimes there are still staggered releases. How the fuck does that happen in this <laughs> day and age? Yeah, no, I, that's a good
0: point. It's significant, like months sometimes. Because you mm. especially, you kind of especially notice it in Oscar season, whereby yeah. around October they get you hear the yeah. buzz on some film, and, oh, when's that? That must be out soon. And then it's like it's being released on February the tenth in the UK. It's like what is this Disney in the nineties? Why is this happening?
1: Yeah, yeah, i, I like why as an anti-piracy measure was that not dismantled literally 20 years ago because i remember um i think even for the first lord of the rings i knew someone who downloaded it and that's christmas 2001 we got it
0: someone we know actually made a short film someone we used to work with and i said can i watch it and he went oh no we're not going to put it online we're going to sort of try and game the festival circuit with it and i thought oh that's quite good actually because if you did just whack it online There'd be this spurt of activity, maybe from your friends, and that's it. Whereas building up hype around something, especially if you're an independent unknown release, is kind of key. So maybe, maybe that's partly why you do have these staggered releases, so you can kind of let you know let the hype build and let the the accolades build up, especially in Oscar season. And then by the time it arrives, yeah. everyone's really pumped for it, rather than just being like, "Blam! Here's La La Land everywhere right now."
1: Yeah, th- yeah. There's truth to that, and uh, some American pictures still open in Europe first I think occasionally Tarantino's pictures open here a few days early to generate the European buzz because it's understood that he is uh, Tarantino himself I think it was in an interview with Barbara Waters she said what about the violence in your films and he said well these aren't Kill Bill is not a violent film compared to the violence that you see in Japanese pictures and she said yeah but for the American market and he said well I make films for the world Pretty good comeback, but... Um, it is good. Yeah, he's, actually uh,
0: sort of of all... your, This sort of leads into another t- conversation we were going to talk about, which is it's looking like Tenet, the new Nolan film, will be released gradually everywhere, depending on the COVID situation in specific areas. And we might even be yeah. getting a situation, and I spoke about this on my As Yet Unreleased uh, new podcast that I'm doing. Um, you might end up in a situation that's the exact opposite of how films are released in these up to the 70s which is as you know and i know in the 70s up till then you'd release them in the east and west coast first and then you'd bleed out into the rest of the country yeah. depending on word of mouth even for massive films even the godfather and things like that or ben-hur whatever it is it's like no you still don't do do the opening weekend it's just bleed out word of mouth um we're now in, in entering the opposite of that which is it might be released everywhere except la and new york uh, because those they're not they're, oh. they're struggling with COVID. It is bizarre inversion of the way films used to be released. Um, it's but, no um, wonder
1: then that the coasts have developed culturally in the way that they have over the last sixty or seventy years when systems like that exist. Systems like that which are unfair. I mean,
0: I know, but there's no mechanism. The, the point is, there was no mechanism at that point to go.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, because it just wasn't a commercial thinking to go well, let's just release it everywhere and just spend five million dollars. And they'd be like, mm. D- shut up. No, we're not spending five million dollars on some blitz. Let's just do it how we've always done it. And it's only once yeah. you get to certainly Jaws and then definitely Star Wars where you're like, oh, actually, this makes quite a lot of sense. <laughs> I mean, actually, I would argue maybe it doesn't make sense because it rewards, I don't know, it rewards good marketing campaigns rather than art. Because at least on the old system, you could spread via word of mouth uh, or you, ha- you were forced to, to do that in a way that, uh, now you're not.
1: You need both. It's funny that it's going to happen with Tenet because one of the best examples I have of a US picture opening first in the UK is Memento, 20 years ago. It's uh, yes. opened it in the UK well in advance of wasn't the Wasn't it US. in 2000
0: and then wasn't it 2001 in America? Or was it not that extreme?
1: Yeah, I think that's correct. There was a six-month lag, which is not uncommon for independent minded studio pictures and for independent pictures it's i mean it's probably been almost completely eradicated now because it will just be video on demand for everyone and opening here and there i'm going back to the thing you said about netflix and entering the cultural conversation this is the point i was going to be making was that marriage story and roma are both available on the criterion collection um but uh and i think uncut gems has also got a blu-ray release the irishman hasn't yet and Quite reasonably, cineasts are concerned the level to which it will be available in physical form. Now,
0: well, do you reckon I'm sure something being... will
1: happen, but.
0: Do you reckon Netflix are being more protective over that because that's their big darling in a way that I may... don't know, but.
1: Isn't it it's, a big, it's
0: a bigger financial investment for them than by miles compared to *Marriage Story*.
1: Oh yeah, what did it cost? Like 150 or
0: something? Yeah, so maybe that's why they're being a bit like, no, you have to watch that here. Whereas with *Marriage Story*, they're yeah. a bit more like, well, that's never going to be, that's not being one of our top um, streamers, so that's fine. You can have it, Criterion. If you, you haven't seen *Marriage Story*, have you?
1: No, still not. But I will be getting the, uh, I will be getting it on Blu-ray. It cost 18. Blimey, it took 2.3. Oh, I suppose that's. Yeah, you it can't do on the old, um, yeah. But, you know, um, that's but, like, that's yeah. an
0: interesting thing you have just hit on there, which is,
1: oh, I quite... I, one of my
0: things I like to do is, like, if, if I'm reading about a band, I'll go to their discography page on Wikipedia and I'll look at what all their hits were. So I'll just scan through their entire album and then single, like, discography to see where was their commercial peak. And it's depressing yeah. now because if, once you hit about 2010, the stats become irrelevant. Because it's just like even the big bands like Oasis or I don't know actually here's a good example Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds the stats are just meaningless it's just like you just by the time you get to like these last the last High Flying Birds album it's like it's all like seventy thousand units it's like what that was like a big radio two album that everyone liked and yet mm. and it's just no one's buying it I uh, mean I sort of missed that metric that you used to be able to get.
1: Yeah, you're kind of losing the barometers. But a- another good point is that, um, yes, Marriage Story and Roma, I haven't seen either of those. They are available in hard copy and I'll be getting them. Um, Uncut Gems I have seen. And most of these pictures, even though they're... But, but
0: Uncut Gems was simultaneously cinema release. certainly was yeah. in America. Yeah. In here.
1: Most of these pictures, even though they're streaming, they are available at the cinema. However, there's a couple of important exceptions which I haven't yet tracked down at the cinema, Meyerowitz Stories by Noah Baumbach, with The Sandman and Driver and Dustin Hoffman, is still in that one. I feel like they're all in it. I haven't seen that yet, and that's one reason is because it's on Netflix. And then another one, I was all geared up for the new Coen Brothers picture, Ballad of Buster the Scruggs, and it went to Netflix. Yeah. And I haven't seen that. And so for me, um, uh, throughout my teenage years and throughout my 20s, the Coen Brothers were my favourite directors. Their golden period ended with the release of the lady Killers. That was their first film, which wasn 't excellent subsequently they've had probably their critical high was no country for old men, yeah, which was now twelve ish years ago, but they've somewhat faded from the front of my consciousness because uh then I think they're now past the the height of their prowess, but also because I just didn't see their last their latest film I saw. This, this is great. what I mean when I, I saw say "Hailed uh, Hail Caesar," and they're not you know they made a film two years ago, and I haven't seen
0: it. But Maybe this is what I'm getting at when I say you're missing out. I mean, I, we can mm. value. I get like we can value waiting and being like, "No, I'm going to wait till that's on Blu-ray. I'm going to wait till that's on, I don't know, um, in the, a, a retrospective showing an independent cinema." But you know, you know not every film is, is, is as good as "Marriage Story." That Cohen Brothers film certainly isn't as good as "Marriage Story," but it's but it's good and it's well worth a watch. Um, but because it's not had the cultural impact to warrant rescreenings, maybe you are going to miss out. And that's why I wonder... I, I don't know, is, is your objection to... Do you, you not want to get on Netflix because you don't want to give streaming any edge? you want to give them the money? Could you maybe just once a year get Netflix for a month and <laughs> blitz through all the films that you've missed? Or I don't know. I'm spitballing. Well,
1: part of the problem now is that... Um, Having analysed the streaming landscape, Netflix is nowhere near the best for films. So even if I were to get streaming subscriptions, it would be for the BFI player. If I was doing the rental, I'd give Chili a go. I know that's a little bit unstable. So honestly, I I might default to Amazon, but I'd try my best not to. But I, yeah, I wouldn't buy Netflix because I don't consider it to be value for money. It's only the ninth biggest library. No, i probably it
0: would be that because i can't remember how much it is let's just say you pay top-end like tenner for a hd month of it and then you watch every film that you haven't seen that we've discussed let's just in fact, let's just say you watch two of them let's just say you watch defy yeah. bloods and marriage story you've paid 10 pound to watch two great films there um i was uh umming and on about getting a movie because of the finances and then i was like well if you watch two films You've bet, you know, you've still paid a load less than you would have done if you'd have driven to a cinema and watched it there anyway. Yeah. So maybe it's better to think of it in that terms, like just have it occasionally and catch up on those films and it was worth it, you know, it was worth spending ten pounds on a new Spike Lee film, a new uh Baumbach film, and the new Scorsese film.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like I've in the in the same way that I got the now T V subscription. With the intention of dipping in only for Game of Thrones. And I deliberately waited six weeks until I, uh, four to six weeks before I started the subscription, so that I could watch the first three episodes out of time and Had then watch I, the yeah. next three episodes week by week. Uh, and then I ducked out again. So I paid for, I don't know, three months subscription and then um, picked it up again in the new year. So now, like seven or eight months ago. Uh, I might do that for Netflix, I suppose, but I don't. I, to an extent, they are working with the best directors, but they don't—they don't have a commitment to the preservation of film. They're not really primarily about cinema. I don't like the way that they treat cinema and their uh, how they prioritise content, box-ticking content over cinema. I mean, the, the, the funny thing is that like, I'm well pleased. They give uh, literally $20 million to the Sandman. I think that's funny, of all things, and he can make whatever he likes for them. It's outrageous <laughs> that it works like that, and it also speaks to the kind of product he's producing because it's probably culturally non-specific because it has to cross borders, so there'll be plenty of slapstick and plenty of very obvious jokes. He's, he's leveraged that. He's taken advantage of them for colossal amounts of money.
0: Netflix is, uh, the, the way they make stuff is, it cuts both ways, doesn't it? Because it's great that they basically say to Scorsese and people, you can do what you want, we'll have no input. But yeah, I've watched stuff on Netflix where I think, I really wish they'd had some input. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's not <laughs> yeah. bad yeah. It's not bad to hand someone a note. Especially, like, yeah. they, they do a lot of rom-coms where they're getting really talented people and, like, these two-hour-long baggy things and they have a good idea, but they squander and it's like... Netflix, just it's not bad to hand some memos down the line. Uh, yeah. And anyway. I
1: presume it's because they don't care. They just want you to oh, produce no, I two elements right. of something.
0: I think you're right. So like, They don't care. They're like, what's the most leverage we can have? Fuck it, let's just let Scorsese do what he wants. Let's let this director do what they want. Uh, because, yeah, maybe they're not, they don't care about art. They're not A24, for example.
1: The other thing I discovered in my research was that Netflix's model essentially replaces older films with its newer films on a long enough time scale and it won't I'm not talking about 100 years I'm talking about 5 years that's very distressing to know that what you will have available through your Netflix subscription is the 500 films that they've made in the pre, in the preceding 10 years but every time one of those pictures is made one of those two or three out of five pictures every time one of those is made it's in Netflix's interests to uh, prioritise that ahead of a film that it has to pay rights to. So when Netflix makes something, it makes more money from that than if it has to keep going to whoever owns the rights to the catalogue of Bogdanovich or Billy Friedkin or Nancy Myers and keep asking them to have something's got to give for another year or the holiday. i will picked a couple of films, and I'm not being derisive of Nancy Myers. I've seen every one of her directing efforts at the cinema i'm on the most astonishing nancy Myers cinema hot street going back to the parent trap which i reviewed for my school newspaper wow. in gcse years um they're a confection of mine i, I think in in many ways nancy myers pictures are just the female equivalent of Jada patow films where people live in what, what's a to all intents and purposes gated communities in los angeles and they have a their, you know, their notion of hardship is <laughs> very different. Whether or not they should think about having an affair, and then they don't. <laughs> like, like, Which is like some... Woody
0: Allen as well. That's all of his films.
1: <laughs> like that. Yeah, Should I have an affair you know, this I...
0: year, or should I not have an affair? It, uh,
1: that's a really good point. I've never really compared the two, but when you do, Jada Patel looks even worse. And I think he's an astonishing talent spotter, amazing, a decent writer, a, a very good writer. But these two-hour-plus epics have to go. I haven't yet seen King of Staten Island. I was looking forward to that. I find Pete Davidson very attractive. His entire physique looks like an erect cock. You know when (laughs) lads have that look? Northern lads have that look as well where you think you're not actually beautiful. You're not even necessarily handsome. But you just look like a penis. (laughs) He's like that to me. A tattooed penis. Um, That's that's an example
0: of like that's not cheap to stream. That's It's like you have to pay something mad like 15 quid to dream that which i guess is like that's what it would cost in the cinema but even i don't want to pay that to watch it in home the whole point of the cinema is that it's on a massive screen and a big comfy chair and all that stuff Wait, what
1: do you mean it's 15 quid to hire
0: oh because it's new i'm pretty sure that's not the case with all new things but there's certain films like that are insanely i'm going to double check this that was definitely the case when i last looked bear with me just one. that's
1: watch. outrageous that's like uh, paying fifty quid to see football at home, and the justification is well, it would cost you fifty quid at the stadium. Yeah, but it's a different environment, you know. Yeah. Uh, oh gosh, that makes me feel even worse. I didn't see that film yet, and now you compare it to Woody Allen. Yeah, realize, so oh, w- wow. Mate, <laughs>
0: if I want to watch *The King of Staten Island* tonight, thirteen ninety nine on Amazon, Apple TV, Sky Store, Microsoft, Rakuten, fifteen ninety nine on Google Play, or fifteen ninety nine on YouTube. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm sure that'll filter down. Maybe it's just the case that in six to nine months it will appear at a cheaper rental option on these things. And yes, I guess that's in line with what happens with films anyway, which is the more expensive to see yeah. straight away. But as I say, I'm, not, I'm just not going to pay 15 quid to, to, to stream a film like that at home.
1: Last thing on it, it's probably because of COVID-19. Nevertheless, yes. that doesn't seem like a very um, agile response from the studios to say... no. We wanted people to pay 16 at the cinema. We expect them to pay 16 at home. They're not going to. They're no, just so
0: this, not going to. And this goes on to what I was going to talk about with COVID, which is what we're seeing now in films, and I'll talk about this on my other film podcast uh, as well, which I'll do some cheap advertising for there. Uh, film studios at the moment seem to be in a... They don't know what they're doing. And they seem to be in a state of experimentation because you're getting lots of different kind of stuff. It's looking like tenor, as I said before... They're going to do this, some kind of delayed release whether they'll release it in territories that they can and won't. It's apparently definitely coming out on the twenty sixth or something of August. That's the thing. Um, it won't be released in like uh, the sort of coastal cities in America, like LA and New York, uh, but it will be released elsewhere. It's very fascinating. Mulan, which was another one like Tenet, was supposed to be one of the first new big films. That's going on Disney Plus, but it's not going on Disney Plus in, in the way that you can just stream it for free if you have a subscription. That's going to cost $30 to rent. And I'm really dubious that's going to pay off. Whoa. But it's an example of them going, you know, experimenting with it. Bill and Ted Face the Music is going to be mixed. It's going to be cinema and available to stream. I don't know what the price on that is yet. Is that just going to be a cheap rental option? Is that going to be, see it in the cinema, or we'll see it at home, 15 quid? Um, and there's just stories like this every week where they're just, let's try a different thing for this film. Usually the more co- the more common story is it's just going straight to Netflix or if Amazon have bought this or Netflix have bought that. But with those big yeah. sort of more tentpole-y things, the, we are entering a weird period of experimentation and it'll be interesting to see what pays off.
1: £30. So would that entitle you to watch Mulan indefinitely or is it just one time?
0: No idea. But either way, I think... Oh, it's too I don't think that's going to work. I was a bit dubious about whether Mulan was going to be a big hit. The, the original Milan wasn't massive.
1: Um, no, I mean it's it wasn't got Ed massive. Eddie Murphy, in it. it's probably like his fourteenth biggest film.
0: <laughs> I thought you were going to say that Space Line. To my mind, Eddie Murphy's third best film. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it wasn't massive. Um, doesn't have massive cultural imprint, I don't think. Uh, it's certainly not going to be like The Lion King or Beauty and the Beast, where you know you're tapping into something that people have a lot of nostalgic love for. And also, and I say this, I'm someone who can easily be convinced to watch Mulan. And I can certainly am superficial enough that some decent cinematography or some good action in a trailer, especially, you know, I like Lord of the Rings and stuff like that. I'm all for big epic battles. The trailer did not impress me. I was a bit like, I don't know why I'd, I'd go and watch that film. It just didn't strike me as being great. So just on that, you know slightly well very subjective metric of did the trailer excite me no it's not a remake mm. of a particularly massively loved film i wasn't even sure if that was destined to be a big hit in cinema i do not think people are going to pay 30 dollars or 30 quid to rent that at home that seems wow. insane
1: i'm surprised to see i just googled this quickly and mulan uh when box office is adjusted is actually eddie murphy's fifth biggest hit Diff. After Shrek, Shrek 2, Trading Places, and Beverly Hills Cop. I'm surprised. It,
0: oh, so maybe it was bigger but, than I'm letting on. Fair
1: enough. What's the worldwide
0: gross on Mulan?
1: It alleges uh, adjusted to be 591.
0: That's pretty good, I suppose, but it's not a film people talk about, is it?
1: And no. I, think, I, I think mean that's the, my point. Part of it is that its global box office in 98 was 304 million.
0: And actually, maybe that's another part of their game. We know, we know the big studios want the China money. So maybe that's yeah. part of why the idea with Mulan.
1: But yeah, I, I completely agree that it's the kind of Disney picture that people bring up in conversation when they want to show that they're a Disney head. Just in the same way that I might mention Oliver and Company or Basil the Great Mouse Detective.
0: My Iron Lung EP. That's my favourite radio album.
1: Oh yeah, tell me about... Um... Meeting people is easy. That's what it's
0: called, right? Oh yeah, because I did a Facebook post about this and the, oh, a tweet. Yeah. Oh, uh, so I, I, I with the with the caveat. I'm only halfway through it. You can watch it on YouTube for free. It doesn't cost thirty pound to rent. Um, that would be me. <laughs> it's uh, it's dated terribly. It's awful. It's 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 almost abysmal. <laughs> um, it's like watching Chris Morris's Jam but without any punchlines. Uh, I will say the best thing about it is that it. Commits to its aesthetic, um, mm. but I think its aesthetic is—I don't know—it's just—it's just really pretentious. There's a—I think he's trying to create the—he's trying to mimic and create the white noise of a promotional tour, because the film sort yeah. of becomes about how promoting this massive hit album really grinds Tom York down. And maybe there's some worth in that, but I'm, I'm a big proponent of a little bit goes a long way, and I just think by going for such a a style-over-substance approach, actually, it just feels like there's a lot more... I don't know, there's a lot more... You just mine a lot more interesting stuff from that period by just letting the band speak, Or uh, is is my thinking. And you do get glimpses of interesting stuff. You get glimpses of uh, Tom York filming the No Surprises video, and it took him so many takes, and (laughs) this water filling up while he sings No Surprises at, like, ten times the speed and footage of him just going, like, fuck, 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 when he sort of had to trigger the thing to release the water too early. Um, mm.
1: As a young man, I was surprised to hear that they speed it up for no surprises, because whenever I watched the video, I'd hold my breath. <laughs> I it's used not to do like that. I passed out. I used to do you that on Star Trek it. for
0: The Voyage Home, when Kirk swims under the Klingon ship to release the waves. Oh, I used to be like... <gasps> And then
1: you you just... don't want you don't want to do it on that Mission Impossible where Cruise does it for real because he oh, yeah, well, you will die. pass out. Yeah, but with um with no surprises, yeah, it's eminently achievable. Um, and I was disappointed to hear that even though you have to do a few takes, I thought fuck it, you know, like you could do that once every ten minutes.
0: Tommy, off what a hat.
1: But um, I just checked, and meeting people is easy. Uh, according to Just Watch, is not available to stream legally in the UK. Not legally, a...
0: but you can do it illegally on YouTube.
1: Yeah, yeah. Or, or to what extent is it illegal? It's probably illegal for YouTube to host it, but not for you to watch it.
0: That's, um, I, so when I was reading about this, that, the VHS of that sold 500,000 copies. What a different age. <laughs> you know what I mean? Really this make, this tour thing. Did you say
1: half a million?
0: Yeah, it sold 500,000 copies. Wow. I mean, that's like almost half of what it sold roughly at that time sales-wise. What well, the album sold, OK Computer. Um,
1: yeah, it probably is the case that most people who bought the album and enjoyed it also bought the tape.
0: Yeah, like I don't know what this sales worldwide would be on like an OK Computer. Like my guess is probably in the 10 million range, because I think it may be sold between 1 and 4 in America. It sold 1.2 here at the time. Um, but that shows you that the people who were buying the album were really into it, because a lot of them were then going out and buying this... Um, no it's not even a concert film, that's what's mad about it. It's just snapshots and bits cut together and sounds of people talking and you know weird, blurry shots of street lights at night. uh I hated it yeah.
1: <laughs> You are whetting my appetite for it,
0: but yeah, no, so this is interesting period. Hollywood is experimenting. I suspect tenor will do well. Maybe a little box office will be dented, but you know. Maybe it will return what we've been talking about. Maybe people... LA will be like, Tenet's in town, finally. We want to get out. And because also, bear in mind, so when Tenet does hit a place that can't have Tenet, it won't just be, oh, Tenet's here, let's go out. It will arrive there when they can suddenly go out. Does that make sense? So it will be like, we can go out and Tenet's available. Let's go and watch Tenet. So I think Tenet will probably yeah. be okay. I don't think Mulan um, will be okay in that, it, with that uh, release pattern that they've chosen. Burnt hit Face the Music will be interesting. Again... To what extent was that going to be massive? Like the first two films are like small hits; they, they weren't huge. They were just like nice small hits that uh, you know have a people have a very pleasant nostalgia for. Um, w- w- would that have been a big grosser at the cinema? Maybe streaming is the natural home for it, especially if it's just you know a cheap rental option or it's free with a subscription. Perhaps I'm spitballing. What do you think?
1: Those two, I will be going to the cinema. Tenant because it's around the time of my birthday, and because as you know, I've very precise reservations about Nolan which are increasingly redundant because he's sort of the best action director working today in lieu of you always have to consider Spielberg like when you talk about commercial cinema and action cinema you go Verhoeven McTiernan and Bigelow Raimi and then you think oh yeah fucking Steven Spielberg who invented it and you kind of forget he's still working because he doesn't well, yeah, well, I had this conversation with a friend, we were,
0: we were talking about action, great action directors, but he had a very sort of Hong Kong cinema view of what an action director is. Um, so, he, was Kong's... he talking
1: about Wu and Ringo
0: Lam? Yeah, and like The Raid would be like a film that he was that's an action director right there, or a film that is at least yeah, a full-on action yeah. film. Whereas I was saying, Spielberg's a great action director, and he's like, he was like, Spielberg's not an action director. <laughs> I'm like, well, of course he is. We've seen Raiders of the Lost we've seen Jurassic Park, we've seen Minority Report, mm. but actually. I guess for him there's not enough action in that film to qualify, whereas for me, not only is he an action director, he's one of the best, because when his films choose to go in that direction, he's pretty much doing it better than anyone, and that's partly because he approaches action kind of like Hitchcock would approach, approach action and not, how I say, yeah. Michael Bay would. And it's why, it's why De Palma is really good at it in the first Mission Impossible film, because he's yeah, approaching it from an old school, how do we build tension in this moment? not necessarily what will look cool, although ultimately you end up having both.
1: I was pleased to see that Baumbach produced a documentary about De Palma. Um, De Palma's been slept on. Uh, For me, The Untouchables and Mission Impossible, if you want to name a second, are the absolute zenith of art and commerce. I think even better than Spielberg, De Palma combines something that's genuinely, sometimes even pretentious, with just really enjoyable Untouchables is amazing and, and Mission Impossible I think Luke and I talked about this when we did our Mission Impossible episode which is I think now two years ago but it's De Palma's important part in that has been somewhat forgotten and now it's Macquarie's um, purview but yeah that original one is all the canted angles it's wonderful stuff
0: great um, uh, I think we've discussed yeah, this be before see... on this pod <laughs> I think you've said all those things before
1: <laughs> just, uh, yeah I'd definitely be going to the cinema to see Tenet and I want to see Bill and Ted face the music because the first film I ever saw at the Pictures so I want to go and see that with my old man probably back in Suffolk. Nice. Uh, And so even if it is made available to me through some streaming platform um, I want to take the time to see it in the cinema.
0: Actually I've got some news. Uh, A film insider that I know who works for a major chain um, Curzon or Everyman, I can't remember which one had a really good weekend with the Russell Crowe film, they had a good weekend with it. Amazing, you know, they, he's done this film, Unhinged, or something, where it's like a falling down style thing about a guy, a woman refuses to apologize to him for being rude. So he goes on some, he starts like harassing her and stalking her or something. I don't know, it's like a beaming. I've weekend.
1: heard of it, but I noticed it was one of the few films that's at the cinema at the yeah. moment. And apparently, and it's did doing okay. well,
0: yes. Um,
1: is that because people are just desperate to get out of the house for any reason?
0: Um. Well, maybe, I don't know. Let's speculate. Picture House released Proxima, and this is the space drama that stars Eva Green, and it looks a little bit Ad Astra, um, but maybe on a slightly yeah. more independent vibe. Um, I suspect it's probably actually a bit like that Claire Denis film with Pattinson, but less weird. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. We, 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 I can't imagine there's a scene where, in that what Eva Green masturbates for five minutes from weird angles, <laughs> like there is with Juliette Binoche in... Uh, in, what is that film called, High Life? But I'm actually going to go and see that next week at the cinema. But, no, but, but, sorry, that was my point. Picture House. They didn't have a good weekend with that. That didn't get the punters in, but the Russell Crowe thing did, which really surprised me. I know the Crowe film is inherently more mainstream, but I thought the Picture House crowd might be up for something like Proxima, but clearly not.
1: Right, uh, do you think there's anything else that we should discuss?
0: Uh, I will say this. You were right about streaming... And I (laughs) would...
1: For the record. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I don't... The the funny thing is that uh, the last time that Aidan and I spoke and published was way back in March, and it was a rather belated preview of the year, and we talked about the releases that would come basically April onwards. And the fucking irony of that situation is that we haven't missed a beat. Uh, Most of that stuff obviously hasn't yet come out, so something we recorded now five months ago <laughs> yeah. is as relevant... Because by now we would have seen... It's actually more relevant.
0: By now we would have seen the new Bond film, we would have seen Tenet, we would have seen Top Gun Maverick. There's loads of... All those things we would have seen by now.
1: Yeah. Just before we go, uh, the... I know it's called No Time To Die, which is an, unf- an unfortunate title, but then again, they must, they must have had five titles with die in the title. Um, is the plot about a virus...
0: I. No one knows. But it, no. oh
1: All oh, right. I thought you might know. So no one. Okay. No one knows. Well, they're,
0: they're very. They're very tight-lipped. In what the plots of those things are. We used to mention it though. <laughs> they. Oh, there's a multiple. There's loads of Star Trek movies sort of in development. Star Trek for. Uh. Is it Noah Hawley who writes stuff? Yeah, Fargo. Yeah, Fargo. So he was going to do, he's written one. one. <laughs> um, it's unclear whether that's with the same cast. Tarantino's got his one in the offing that he wrote the story for that someone else is writing. Um, turns out Hawley's one has been put on the back burner because it's apparently to do with the pandemic. And <laughs> they've decided, no, we're not doing that. Which is weird because Star Trek's often, at its best, been about dealing with like present-day issues. But they've if the story's Mm. true that's why it's been put on the back burner Um, anyway I'm a bit dubious about whether we'll ever see Star Trek 4 because I think it's clear power might want to do something with it because they keep like tossing the football around with it because it's clearly commercial enough to be worth doing something with but the last film just didn't take enough money to warrant doing another 150 million dollar one so
1: that's the one written by Peg right
0: yes Um, so I want to see it personally but I am just yeah it probably won't happen
1: Right, right, it's been a wonderful chat as ever. You mentioned you've got your own film podcast going.
0: Basically, the film yeah. it's going to be a film news podcast, so it's not really an, an analysis thing like this one. It's just me telling you what's happening in film news um, with some uh, ramblings in between. It's kind of just an excuse for me to I don't know, riff a little bit, but we're using the film news as a, as a launching pad for that. I say the word film news in it quite a lot. That was my friend Ben's feedback. He said, you say film news a lot. And uh, I think that's because it 's a bit rambly. I like to just remind people that there is a point <laughs> to what they 're listening to, yeah. a bit like chris Chris um, rock repeating the key point he 's making. You, you know what I mean
1: Where can we find your film podcast when it drops
0: uh, everywhere I, I I understand the way you release podcasts now because i haven 't actually released my own podcast in like <laughs> five years, and um, you can pretty much just put them on a certain app and it 'll just send it everywhere. So whatever your app you're using to download them, you will be able to find it. And the title will almost certainly be Film News Aidan McCaffrey. I might change it. Follow me at AidanMcComedy on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. And I'll, you'll know there when it's released.
1: And uh, later this year, but still in advance of the release of Blonde, which of course has been postponed, Aidan and I will reconvene eventually for a discussion on the cinema of Andrew Dominic. Thank you very much for joining us on the Evening Glass. Before we go, pleasing news in relation to something we just discussed. Days after this recording, the Criterion Collection confirmed that they'll be handling a Blu-ray release of Scorsese's The Irishman, coming out end of November, just in time to be ordered, received and enjoyed alongside The Great Escape and Bridge Over the River Kwai and all those other three-hour epics we fall asleep to on Boxing Day. As promised, I'm off to see Tenet this week, and if you're doing the same, we do hope you'll take the opportunity to throw some cash the way of an independent cinema near you. Regent Street Cinema remains closed for now, but in Brentford, The Waterman's has reopened, and as Aidan mentioned, the Everyman Chains venues are up and running across the country. Our Betu boycott of Picture House ended shortly before the lockdown, but we'd still suggest you give them a wide berth and opt for a more ethical alternative. September brings a glut of interesting indie releases, the apparently utterly harrowing World War II drama The Painted Bird by Václav Maul, Sally Potter's The Road's Not Taken, Javier Bardem and Salma Hayek, Submarine star Craig Roberts, sophomore directing effort *Eternal Beauty*, starring Sally Hawkins and David Thewlis, and chiming with our own musical interests here at One Sensational Shot, Ruby Kashar's documentary *White Riot*, what explores the late '70s rock against racism movement. If you'd like to help fund the podcast, do stop by our eBay One Sensational Shop, where you'll find over a hundred tapes, discs, records, books, magazines, and comics. And to support us, follow us on Facebook and Instagram and spread the word on Stitcher, iTunes and Spotify.